and we'd rebuilt the milking parlor, which hadn't been operating. We'd done all of this sort of stuff. And so when we actually came to close the sale, we had two years of numbers to show that we actually knew vaguely what we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And we were off and running. And we were here from 1977. Well, I'm still here. Uh, We still live. We sold the farm, but we kept 10 acres. But we farmed until 2012. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. Jen, thanks for joining us today. First up, register now. Registration is open for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to Western Massachusetts in January the 25th through the 27th. This event is a partnership between the Northeast Grazing and Livestock Conference and the Northeast Pasture Consortium Annual Meeting. We will have some of the latest research to share, farmer panels, practical presentations, lots of discussion, and plenty of time to connect with friends from around the region. It is a hybrid conference, so there is an online um, option, too, for folks who live too far away to come in person. Registration links are right in the show notes. Feel free to go there right now. Um, We hope to see you there. And when I say we, I mean me, too. I've been part of the planning team for this event, and we are so excited to be back in person, bringing together livestock farmers from all around the Northeast region. So I hope you will come join us. So on today's episode um, is John Roberts. John Roberts was a dairy farmer in Vermont for more than 30 years and is now the state director of the USDA Farm Service Agency. He's had a really interesting road (laughs) from one continent to another, as you'll find out. So here's John. I am John Roberts. I live in Cornwall, Vermont. Uh, I have been a resident of Vermont since 1974. So whatever that is, that's almost 50 years. I've been a resident of Cornwall since 1977. Um, I originally come from Great Britain. I came here, I studied agriculture in England at university, but did not come from a farming family. was brought up in a, a fairly substantial city called Newcastle upon Tyne. Came to Vermont one summer, 1972, to work on a farm about which I knew nothing except that they had a herd of brown Swiss cows, and I'd never seen brown Swiss cows, and that's what attracted me. And 
friend in it happened to be in Shelburne, Vermont. And as luck would have it, I met my future wife. I, I came to Shelburne Farms. I had no idea what I was coming to. When I was offered the job, they didn't say, oh, we are this famous estate in, you know, in Vermont. They didn't say anything about my future father-in-law did not say any of that. He mentioned he had a herd of brown Swiss cows, and that's why I came. Oh, that's why I accepted his offer. He met me at the airport, and he was dressed like a farmer in blue jeans and denim shirt and work boots, and he was driving a rather beat-up VW Bug that day. And it wasn't until we drove through the gates, and he sort of dismissed as, um, I mean, I'm, I know you've been to Shelton Farms, you know, you sort of dismissed the farm barn as we drove by it, said, oh, that's just the farm barn. And I sort of looked at it and said, oh, yeah, everybody has one of those. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and then, you know, by chance, his youngest daughter and I, Lisa, hit it off. We will have been married in three weeks time we will be married for 49 years oh congratulations that's amazing <laughs> that's totally oh my gosh wait so I want to even can we go one step further back <laughs> how did you come from Great Britain to Vermont at all like how did you oh, even know yeah. that you wanted to come to the U.S. I'll go back I'll jump back a little further and yes, how did uh, and answer your question which you will have is how did I come from being a city boy to being a farmer. Yes. You know, Thank my, you. my parents, my father, we were a traditional household. My father was a an administrator for the British National Health System. He was actually a trained lawyer, although he did not practice. He, you know, served in World War II. He was actually a prisoner of war of the Germans for four years. Wow. a long time in World War II. And my mother was actually an intelligence officer and trained French resistance fighters. One thing is my parents always rented a cottage in the country for summer vacation. And we, I have four, I have three brothers and sisters. Well, two sisters and a brother. They all live in England. They all live in London. And when we we rented this cottage in the northwest part of England called the Lake District, which is a very hilly, very mountainous, very marginal type of farming. And at about the age of eight, I started following the farmer behind. I just started following him around when I was there. I preferred that to going on long hikes up mountains. <laughs> um, <laughs> the farmer who was at the time quite young, he just he just got married and he and his wife had taken over the tenancy of this small farm. And I just fell, I fell in love with it. And that's how I got into farming. And, and by the age of 10, I was telling my parents I was going to be a farmer. And I subscribed. I was. I sort of it became a joke in a way with my friends because I would 
subscribe to this weekly farming magazine and read all about farming. Wow. And how did your parents feel about that? Well, it, yeah. it is very interesting. Many parents might have been very discouraging. My parents were not. They never said, oh, you don't want to do that. You oh. know, they never said. And I think part of that is cultural. Farmers certainly were regarded as kind of a, a fairly a good status to be in England at that time. My mother was brought up way back prior to the Depression. My grandfather owned a fairly large piece of land in Scotland, which he didn't, it was very rough, very, you know, right in the hills of Scotland. So although it was a very large piece of land, it was very poor farming, incredibly poor. I mean, sort of like farming in the deserts of New Mexico. It took, you know, like 400 acres to feed one cow sort of right. thing. <laughs> because it was all just rocks and heather and that sort of thing. They did have sort of an in a, a small farm, but they didn't farm. They had somebody who farmed for them. They had a manager. So my mother had that, and I think she thought that was the kind of farming I was going to be. I was going to be a gentleman farmer right. and, and order people around. But uh, no. So anyway, and then the other part is that my grandmother and great-grandmother were both Americans on my mother's side. Oh. Um, so I have a very cross-Atlantic history. My mother was actually born just outside Boston, oh. <laughs> in, in Brookline, Massachusetts. But she mm -hmm. was three months old when they moved back across the Atlantic so that my grandfather could join the British Army to fight in World War I. And they never came back. My mother's first cousin became my godmother. And she was very diligent godmother. She sent me lots of books about America. And when I was 10 years old, I actually came and spent a month in Boston for living with her and, and learning about the States. And I became, I became very interested in the United States. So thinking of coming for a summer job and, and, and then going to visit relatives seemed like a very logical thing to do. And it also probably made it very simple for me when the time came to say, okay, this is where my life is going to be. I went to university and studied ag, and my degree was is in uh, farm management with a, a uh, one in England. Is, I don't know whether they do this anymore, but it, uh, I did an extra year, so I got what's called an honors degree with, in economics. But clearly, I never paid attention to the economics, or I would I would never have become a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> we will but, talk about that part. <laughs> but but it, you know, when I was sort of geared up for a career as a farm manager, you know, managing that was sort of the only way I could see I would ever get into farming. There was no way 
I could buy a farm in England. So when I came to America in 72 and met Lisa, I went back to England at the end of that summer and told my parents I'd met the girl I wanted to marry. <laughs> and she wasn't quite so convinced at that point. <laughs> it's sort of a funny piece of family history is that in 73, I came back, you know, we, we wrote letters so that, you know, this is back in the day when <laughs> you wrote letters because picking up the phone and calling across the Atlantic was not a simple thing to do. So we wrote letters and, um, when I came back in 73 to work for again on the farm for the summer, I was expecting to see Lisa there and she wasn't there. She skedaddled with her brother to drive across the Amer America and see America, but also to avoid me. She freely admits this because she just wasn't, she was only 17, 18 years old at the time. Yeah. And um, and she just wasn't sure about me. <laughs> but, but then, funnily, her father, who, in addition to owning Sheldon Farms, he owned a Cessna dealership at Burlington Airport. He, he announced over dinner one night that he had to go out to Kansas and pick up a new airplane. And wouldn't it be a great idea if I went with him and I could meet up with Lisa and her brother, and they could show me America, you know, take me on their road trip. He did not know at that time that I was interested in his daughter. I think he just thought this was a great idea. This was, and, and, and I don't think he sort of called them both up and said, what do you think? I think he said, I'm gonna bring John and he can ride with you. And we ended up meeting in Jackson's Hole, Wyoming. I managed to hitchhike on an airplane, on a small airplane out to Jackson's Hole, Wyoming, and met up with Lisa and her oldest brother, who's called Quentin. And we drove for three weeks through, you know, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington and down into California. It was a wonderful trip. And, wow. um, and it was a very funny because Lisa and Quentin shared a tent and I had a little tent on my own and we never touched, you know, in we talked a lot and hiked a lot. And, and it was on a beach in California that I told her what I really thought about her. And, she wasn't too sure about that, but she was booked on a flight back to Vermont from San Francisco, and I couldn't afford a flight, so I took a train. And I'll tell you, taking a train across America was a wonderful way to see just how big this country is. You know? It really is. <laughs> it took five days and four nights by train. Wow. Uh, well, they're not fast. <laughs> they're not no, they're like, not. <laughs> not, like, not like riding French TGV trains. Um, anyway, we got back to Vermont, and about two weeks later, she capitulated. <laughs>
Well, you gave her time to think, right? Like, because you were taking the train back, like she had a little time to miss you because she spent three weeks with you and, huh. So you came over for for love. (laughs) I wanted to graduate. You know, I wanted to finish my degree. So, so I went back to England and finished my degree, graduated in 74. But by that time, Lisa's father had offered me a job as sort of assistant manager at Shelburne Farms, which of course I accepted, <laughs> you know, not being stupid. Um, <laughs> so I came back in 74 and, and Lisa had come over to England and spent Christmas with my family. Yeah. So she got to meet all my family. I came back in 74 and we got engaged and got married quite quickly. We knew what we wanted. I ended up being more than the assistant manager. I, I basically almost at age 23, I managed the farm all by myself because my father-in-law got diverted by some other issues, personal issues. Uh, and one of the reasons I think he offered is I had kept telling him that I thought Sheldon Farms could be doing much more in the ag world than they were doing. I was there for two and a half years. And in that time, I realized two things. One, I wasn't sure that I would be able to farm as as aggressively. And I don't really, aggressive is really too strong a word, but as I would be able to utilize the farm as, as, as intensely as I thought I would like. Mm. And secondly, I learned that it was much, much easier to buy a farm in the United States than it was in England. Lisa did not wish to move to England. And I made the decision very quickly that America was going to be where my life was going to be. And I had, you know, initiated becoming a citizen very quickly, very soon after we got married. And, and of course, you know, the, just the sheer facts of the matter being a white male European. And in those days, I only had to wait three years and it was, you know, it was relatively easy to become yeah. A citizen. I knew that's what I wanted to do. By 1977, we decided to look for our own farm. We went off and spent quite some time looking at farms throughout the Northeast United States. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. We actually put deposits, uh, put a deposit on a farm up in northern New York. Mm-hmm. And Lisa did say she'd like to stay in Vermont. And by chance, you know, um, we dealt with a couple of different realtors. One day we met up with a realtor and he happened to show us the farm we ended up buying. And this farm had been empty for two years. The previous owners were in bankruptcy and in the middle of a very unpleasant divorce. I mean, we... But we were able to negotiate a deal with them 
and with their bank. We had to deal with their bank. And we were able to lease the farm for two years, you know, because I still wasn't an American citizen at that point. So I could not borrow money. Oh, and right. so we, we leased the farm, which had the advantage of when we did, I did become a citizen and I qualified for an FHA loan, which was how we bought the farm. Um, by that time, we'd restored the farm. We had a dairy herd of, we had... We had a few cows we bought from Shelton Farms. We had about half, eight, six or eight milking Swiss and about four heifers, which we brought with us. But then we bought a grade Holstein herd. So we had about 40 cows altogether. We'd rebuilt the milking parlor, which hadn't been operating. We'd done all of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. When we came to close the sale, we had two years of numbers to show that we actually knew vaguely what we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and we were off and running and we were here from 1977. Well, I'm still here, you know, Uh, we sold the farm, but we kept 10 acres, but we farmed until 2012. Um, we went from 40 total cows to a herd of 195 purebred brown Swiss. Um, uh, or I should say registered browns. So some of them were crossbreds, but they were all Swiss, basically Swiss. Yeah. I think at the end we had two Holsteins left. And that's what we did. We have a really nice young couple who bought our farm, who let us, who basically let us almost treat the farm like it's still ours to a degree, without any of the responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and they do it. They're doing a fantastic job. They're really nice. And I'm so happy that we ended up, you know, when you get down to the end, we, we just got to a point, you know, well, we were getting on in years, and our kids did not wish to be farmers. They'd seen yeah. that it was a stressful life. Two of our kids went into banking and finance, of which they're very mm-hmm. successful because they saw where the money was. Right. And, um, and But they all, you know, we have four children, but they are all absolutely thrilled that they were brought up on a farm. I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the Northeast Pasture Consortium. The Northeast Pasture Consortium is an alliance of farmers, researchers, service providers, and policymakers across the 12 Northeast states focused on issues of importance to pasture-based livestock farms. The consortium connects folks from Maine to West Virginia around grazing topics and helps set USDA and university research priorities across the region. Visit grazingguide.net to learn more about our work and join the mailing list to hear about upcoming events and farmer scholarships. And we just, you know, the end, the end was, was difficult. I won't, you know, gloss over that. It wasn't easy. 
it was part of it that wasn't easy was making the decision to stop. Yeah, um, what ultimately brought you to that to that decision that that it was the right time? Well, it was sort of precipitated by events. We in two thousand and eight, we had an outbreak of mycoplasma on the farm. Mm -hmm. Something I'd never heard of at that point. And strangely, in June of that year, <clears throat> Hort Steriman had an article about mycoplasma, which I had not really read because I'd heard, oh, we don't have mycoplasma in Vermont. It's a it's a disease out west. And lo and behold, we had it. And by the time we were done, it was absolutely awful, to be honest. You had all these cows. You sort of had a constant every day. There would be two, three, four cows, new cows, sick. And they would have either this pneumonia, which did not respond to antibiotics, they had foot swelling. We had some of that. Or they had a terrible mastitis, which was almost yeah. worse or as bad as gangrene mastitis. You know, it ruined wow. their eyes. And they were very sick. And I ended up, you know, shooting quite a number of cows because we just were not. And so it was very emotionally depressing. I can tell you the exact date the first cow came down with this and it was and I can still see her in my mind. I think it was June June 12th somewhere around June 12th of 20, 2008. We had a week of very early very hot 90 degree weather, very humid weather. So anyway, we had this at that time, our cat, well, we'd gone to confinement rather than grazing, which I is one of the many decisions in farming I regret, but it is what it is. We had several vets come and advise us what to do, one from Cornell. We had a great vet who worked with Pool and Grain, who knew a lot about mycoplasma because she'd worked out at at Cornell, and they came and advised us. And the big decision was, you know, you you have to you have to test for all the reactors, and you have to separate them and milk them last, and then you have to make a decision: Are you going to keep doing that, or are you going to cull all the reactors? Right. And we made the decision to clean house. Yeah. We culled all the reactors. How many um, was that out of the herd? About 20% of our herd. Oof. Suddenly. Yeah. So, you know, you suddenly have in reduced milk production, increased veterinary costs, substantially increased, you know, all of this stuff. And then the recession hit. Right, 2008. Right. You know, the price of milk dropped 50% right. in January of 2009. And so all of this, Jen, yeah. 
just basically took the enthusiasm of farming away from both yeah. of us. Um, Lisa really wanted to get out of farming sooner than I could. And part of the reason was I didn't want, you know, what was I going to do? And, of course, the other interesting question was we got rid of all the, all the reactors. We tried to figure out how did we get mycoplasma. And there used to be, I don't know whether it still exists, there used to be, it was sort of the early days of computers. Well, maybe not the early, early days, but there was a discussion group on, called Dairy L. I don't know whether you remember Dairy L. No. One of the first, yeah, it's long gone. One <laughs> of the first sort of discussion groups on computer. And I was a member, and, and I put out a question, what is mycoplasma? Who's had it? How do you treat it? Blah, 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 all those sort of things. And I was amazed at the response. But I was equally amazed by how many of my neighbors, I mean, Vermont farmers, not dairy farmers, said, oh, we have we had that, and this is oh, what we wow. did. So oh, wow. the idea that it wasn't in Vermont was totally untrue. It's totally wrong. So is there a, a prevention for it, or is there a way to, to it, have it yes. not settle? I've, uh, ne I've never heard of it either, so it's probably all around me, and I just have oh, never it, known it's, that. Yeah, it's it, everywhere. Is it just everywhere? It. Yeah, huh. it's called my myco mycoplasma bovis, I believe is. Okay, I will look that up for the show notes so that because I bet other folks will wonder. Oh, yeah. it's a terrible, it's a terrible, it's a terrible disease, but it is controllable. We had to figure out, we wanted to figure out how did we get it? And we thought we got it because I bought a, a brown Swiss bull from another farmer who I later heard had had mycoplasma mm -hmm. and we bought this bull and put him with a group of heifers he was to breed these heifers in one of our barns and and the barn was divided in half one had these heifers we were breeding and the other side had all our dry cows mm -hmm. so we got this bull in march and then we pregnancy checked we didn't pregnancy check till the end of may or the beginning of june I forget, not a single heifer was pregnant. So mm. we determined that the bull was useless <laughs> and we got rid of him. The person who'd given us or bought, we'd sort of, you know, said he was he was very good about it. He provided us with another bull without no expense. Mm -hmm. And then we had this this mycoplasma, and we thought, oh, that's how we got it. And it wasn't until later when we analyzed everything, we realized that not a single one of those heifers ever came down with mycoplasma. Huh. And it's highly contagious. Uh -huh. and they, would have, they would have had to have gotten it. Yeah, if they were in with him. So... What we really determined was it was <clears throat> the weather. It was the outbreak of very hot, humid weather. We didn't have enough fans in our barn to really 
circulate the air. And I remember the cows, uh, particularly in one group, all crowding at one end of the barn in this hot, humid weather. And it was just a, a, ma a management mistake. It's sort of, and we learned that mycoplasma is around everywhere. It's just like mm -hmm. E. coli. E. coli mm -hmm. is, we all have E. coli in us. It right. just, right. it's just if circumstances or bad nutrition or whatever cause it to blossom, yep. this is what happened. Yep. And so we, we determined it was a spontaneous outbreak. Wow. After we tested and culled, we went from June till the beginning of September. And after September of 2012, we never had another case. We never had another reactor. Huh. It devastated us. But this was sort of the start <clears throat> for 2008. So it took four years to get to the decision. We borrowed a big chunk of money to survive the recession. And... Um, and then we um, we just weren't enjoying the fun had gone out of it. Yeah. I think we also had I think we had a couple of really wet summers and made making feed very hard and you know all these sort of things. And we were building up some debts, which and we finally decided. And Lisa finally got through to me. We we. <laughs> We sold our herd in November of 2012. Mm. Uh, very, very emotional. Um, yeah, what was that like? What was that like? Just the, the day was, or the next day, you didn't have to get up early or, you know, was what was awful. that like? Yeah. Awful. We we brought in a man, Norm Magnuson, who was a professional brown Swiss auctioneer, brown Swiss dealer. Mm -hmm. uh, Wisconsin, and and we'd known him and his family. One of his uncles had actually years years before I was at Sheldon Farms. He'd been the herd manager at Sheldon Farms. His uncle, so we knew him, and we thought we'd bring in a professional to sell our herd. And they weren't doing well at that time. Our herd average, which had been up around twenty thousand for for the Swiss had dropped precipitously, um, you know, but we sold not as well as we'd hoped, but pretty well. One of the thrills I still get today is, you know, I, I still get the Brown Swiss bulletin. <laughs> I love to see cows doing really well because they list them in there that we know have genetics that came from our farm. Oh, I bet. And in fact, we have a, a world record breaker who we sold as a heifer to a farm out in, in Indiana. And she went on to make phenomenal records, for, you know, 45 to 50,000 pounds of milk. Wow. And staggering records. And she did this for at least six or seven lactations and she was milked in a robot out there. And they they have quite a few offspring out of her. Wow. And it's great fun. You know, she's on the list as in, I think she has two records in the top 10 for protein pr production in the world or in the brown Swiss breed. And yeah. 
that cow came from our farm. That's you know? amazing. <laughs> so it's sort of fun. I can live vicariously through <laughs> through the genetics of our cow. I love brown Swiss. I can almost embarrass myself about how keen. And I love cows. I mean, I love I love farming. That's why I keep working. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, you know, we yeah. stopped. Lisa has been a nurse for a very long time. So she was had a job. And the next day after the sale, the cows were not all gone because we had quite a group who were sold up into Canada. And they, I think there were about 25 or, or 30 that were sold into Canada. And it takes time to do all the health checks to get them. So we were milking for at least another month. Wow. A few cows. And so that was, maybe that eased the transition. I don't know. And we kept, it was about half a dozen cows that didn't go in the sale for various reasons. One of them was our oldest cow, and I, we just couldn't contemplate her going to another farm. Um, she actually lived for about another, oh, into the end of winter of 2009. And then one morning I went in the barn and she was curled up on the floor and dead. And she just died of natural causes. She was, oh, 13, 15 years old. But she was also the great, great grandmother of this world world record holding cow. And she'd won. Lisa had shown her at uh, field day, Addison County field days for years. And she won repeatedly the championship there on several, well, not repeatedly, but on several occasions, even as an old cow, because she looked fantastic. Clearly she had longevity. (laughs) Genetics. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. So anyway, yeah. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had helped found the Champlain Valley Farmer Coalition, which Jeff Carter, the extension agent, had been very instrumental in getting started. And Jeff sort of said to me one day, why don't I come and work for him? And he said it would be one day a week. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Uh, and then it pretty quickly he said, no, I need you to come four days a week. So I became a full-time employee. Well, no, I was never a full-time. This is one of the reasons. <laughs> you know what it's like working for extension. Um, I so I could not be, they wouldn't let me be a full-time employee. I, I think I could work 37 hours or something but they didn't want to give me any benefits. And Oh, that's a three-quarter time position, which is 28.125 hours. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> so, so whatever it was. Above that is benefited, yes. <laughs> whatever it was, but, but then, you know, I worked for Jeff for about six months. Oh, wow, I didn't realize. But, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, but, the, but then I, yeah. by chance, met Laura DiPietro. At the agency. And Laura, I really owe her a big debt. Because Laura <clears throat> sort of said to me, we're revising the RAPs, the AAPs, and making them the RAPs. And we need a small farm inspector, or mm-hmm. want to call them. And why don't I why don't I apply for the job? Mm-hmm. And 
I thought about it and I almost didn't because I had a couple of farmers I mentioned it to and they said, oh my God, you don't want to be an inspector. (laughs) (laughs) But luckily I I applied for the job and I was offered it. And I became, Mm -hmm. in 2013, I became the agency's first small farm inspector. And it really worked well. And I never found, I've no, I shouldn't say never. There were only two or three occasions when I really had unpleasant experiences with farmers. Um, but most of the time, I the two or three occasions, they were unpleasant people and they're out of farming. <laughs> and they deservedly <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. They have done terrible things and, uh, you know, they really weren't good farmers. But most of the farmers, and it's still to this day now in my present job, I'll occasionally go places and meet people and they'll sort of say, oh, I remember you. You came and inspected our farm. Oh, really? (laughs) So Uh, what was that like to be on one side, on the farmer side, and then to be on, on the I mean, you were an inspector. I mean, I was an enforcer, yeah, um, yeah. but I didn't see it as that way. Yeah, and and I think that's why Laura hired me. I knew so many farmers, and I was always an advocate for the farmer. I was also an advocate for the environment. Mm. I believe the the direction we've gone is the right direction. I believe you can farm and be environmentally sound. It has its problems. And as you can see, you have a summer like this and it just completely disrupts things. I mean, I know a problem that is coming up is there's an awful lot of manure in manure pits right this minute that has not been able to be spread through the summer. And what's that going to mean? The ground out there is still very wet. Mm -hmm. Um, I see it. You probably see it. I see farmers haying like crazy right now. We're having some beautiful weather. Um, And they're leaving wheel ruts. Yeah. They're chopping corn and they're leaving wheel ruts. They're not terrible, but it's not easy going. Um, it's there, yeah. And are they going to be able to spread manure? Um, and if not, what the hell are we going to do? Right. So anyway, I really considered I was helping farmers. I was identifying problems and helping them. I would get frustrated if I couldn't find money to help them build what they need. And the state and the USDA were putting in a huge amount of money. So I kept doing that and I hadn't really thought about it. But at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all sent home on March 16th, 2020, I knew that the Champlain Valley Coalition was looking for a new executive director. I mean, or rather for their first executive, they'd never had one. And they had decided they had gotten big enough that they needed one. And Again, I thought about it, and, and uh, a farmer friend co- actually called me up and said, I really, I want you to apply. 
<laughs> That's a vote of confidence, John. <laughs> yeah, and I thought about it, and obviously, I took the job. I I interviewed yeah. and and took the job, and I did that for two and a well, twenty months, yeah. and then at one point in twenty twenty one. I got this message asking if I would be interested in being the head of USDA in Vermont, you know, USDA FSA, the executive director. And I said, sure, I'm whatever I can do to help farmers, pretty much. That's my driving, I believe, strongly in Vermont agriculture's potential. We produce more food in Vermont than all. I, I will. I will boldly say all the other New England states put together pretty much close to, I know we produce twice as much milk as all of them put together. Yeah. I believe strongly in diversification. I wish we weren't such a dairy state. And that doesn't mean that I think, oh, we should be converting dairy farmers to other kind of farms. No, we should be building up yeah. the other the diversified farms. We should be so that instead of dairy being 80% of our ag income, let's say it's 70%, but it's 70 vibrant percent, and the other 30% is vibrant food production. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I would like to see. Yeah, when I think that's what we can do. I have such deep respect for John and all that he's done. Um, I interfaced with him mostly after he'd sold the farm and began working for the ag agency. But even back in the 90s, in an entirely different part of the state <laughs> that I worked in, people spoke about him kindly and respectfully and as a resource. So we just had such a good time talking that I've broken this conversation into two episodes. So we'll talk more about his experience working in federal government on behalf of farmers in the next recording. And as an aside, check out Shelburne Farms. I put a link in the show notes to the page with a farm barn picture. So if John's love story weren't beautiful enough, he clearly got a start at a different kind of a farm. <laughs> it was an awesome opportunity. So related to that, so some of the topics that raised today that I just wanted to highlight, um, even in the early 1970s, buying a farm was hard. I thought it was really interesting that John said he wouldn't be able to afford to buy a farm in England, so he came to the U.S., where we think things are hard to afford. He definitely had an incredible opportunity at Shelburne Farms to gain experience and credibility and obviously to find the love of his life. But that didn't necessarily help him on the financial side as he wasn't a citizen and he couldn't get a loan to buy his own farm. I just, I think we have a tendency to think that things were easier at different times, but even in the 1970s, things were hard. And as we look back and we look forward, the question that I ask is, are things harder or easier or are they just different? Um, in many ways, it's easier now as a woman or a farmer of color to gain entry to farming through there's more educational programs, there's more funding available, there's more beginning farmer money um, with NRCS, there's, you know, but also the prices for so many things have gone up. So there's pros and there's cons. And I, I don't highlight this comparison of the old and the new lightly or flipply. It's it's about recognizing that getting started in nearly any situation and doing something new is really hard in its own unique way. 
and that the rules of the game keep changing. And once we've been doing it for a while, we look back and we say, oh, I can't believe I got this far. I can't believe I did this. So then another topic that sort of rose up for me as well was uh, John talking about Mycoplasma bovis. And it really got me thinking about just livestock health challenges are one of the biggest things that can wear us down. I had livestock health challenges with my lambs this last fall. It was really depressing. It was really depressing. So if you're a person just getting started, I do think it's a really good idea to familiarize yourself with some typical health challenges in your species or your region or both, ideally. Um, The internet has just given us a lot of options for gathering that information. We can get that information now uh, more easily than when John was having trouble. You know, I mean, there's a lot more internet these days. (laughs) But at the same time, like just a little cautionary note, a little, a little bit like a medical doctor in training, you know, once you learn about symptoms, you might start to see them everywhere. And I've, I found it helpful for myself anyway, to find some good informational resources that I can go to. And I included a link to the Merck veterinary manu- manual in the show notes, um, just to give you one, one option. And just and try to get to know your animals so that you recognize when there's a shift in them. Um, we could stay out there and watch them every single second and they could have a sniffle and we could think it's something horrible. But if we get to know our animals really well and we do have some good resources that we can go back to and we learn to trust ourselves, then we'll watch them and we'll be able to go back. But we don't always have to be picking every single um, symptom out and thinking our animals are dying all the time and over-treating, which is one of the challenges too. Whew. Livestock, for livestock farmers, taking care of livestock, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I know that. I, I know you guys all tell me that too. Um, so we'll talk more about this in the next segment, but the but the last topic that, that sort of highlighted for me was um, farming and changing weather and climate conditions, you know, that's come up in a few episodes. Um, and I think it's just going to continue to come up in general. Um, but the, we'll talk next, next segment about some of the ins and outs of working in government and trying to support farmers in changing conditions and how, um, the conditions are changing more quickly than government programs are, or staff is able to necessarily address and the challenges of that and some of the ins and outs of that. Um, We recorded this session in September after Vermont had experienced record rainfall numbers and extreme flooding in July, and um, it felt very fresh, and it still feels very fresh. Uh, At the time of this outro recording, um, we also just had some flooding again in December, which is a little crazy, uh, but we had it again. And so these are issues that are going to just be increasing at least in the Northeast. Those are the predictions that we have for the Northeast. Um, A lot more flooding, a lot more drought too, but a lot more flooding. So what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Uh, Reach out with your comments or questions at choosingtofarm.com. Check those show notes for links to John's contact information at uh, Farm Service Agency, as well as a link to some of the topics we talked about. 
including uh, a link to Vermont's required ag practices. You may have heard us refer to those. And also uh, the Champlain Valley um, Farmer Coalition, which is a watershed coalition. And uh, as always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, consider supporting our Patreon, uh, or leave a public review. They really help and they're free. So I'm grateful every time there is an awesome public review. And lastly, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I just want to give another plug for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to Western Massachusetts in January. Check out the registration and info links in the show notes. Everything is live right now. You can look at the agenda. You can register. um, You can look at the speakers, all of it. You can also join the mailing list of the Northeast Pasture Consortium to get notified with updates about the Gathering of Good Razors, and future events all over the region from Maine to West Virginia and sometimes a little further south too. There are a range of scholarship options for farmers, service providers, and students to attend the Gathering of Good Grazers, but there will also be future scholarships to attend other events around the region. That's an extra uh, reason, um, an extra boom to, uh, to join the Northeast Pasture Consortium mailing list. So please do that. It is such an honor to be able to share your stories out in the world. Farmer to farmer is how we learn and how we build a community. And that's what I hope we're doing together. One episode at a time. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. <laughs>